Well, let me pray for us. And now, Lord, I pray that everything you ever had in mind, every purpose that was on your heart in laying this topic today on my heart many months ago, I pray that you would accomplish and that you would fulfill. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a study guide in your worship folder, and you can pull that out if you'd like to take some notes this morning. Let me start off by reading some scriptures to you. All of these from the pen of the apostle, the great apostle Paul. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So men mentoring other men. And then this great, great verse, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Act like men. The sermon today is kind of an unusual one for me to give. We're wrapping up this series, as you know, on on family life, Home on the Rock. And I wanted to bring something up that's been on my heart for quite a while, and it certainly does affect families a lot. It's a subject I spent a good portion of my study break this summer looking into, trying to understand better. It's bound to be a bit controversial, maybe an uncomfortable topic. For some of you, and by the end it might end up raising more questions than answers. I hope not. But anyway, here's the issue that's been on my mind. What's up with boys? I'm talking mostly about boys here in Western culture, and, and certainly not all boys. I don't want to overgeneralize here. But something sure seems to be going on with many boys and young men in our country, and and it's not very encouraging. Now, for me, I'm coming from the vantage point of someone who's been around since the 60s. Some of you have a perspective that reaches back further than that. Maybe some Gen Xers see this trend. But if you're a millennial or younger, you might wonder, what in the world is that guy talking about? But you need to understand this, a number of researchers who monitor trends in our culture and who have a historical perspective are saying that something disturbing seems to be going on with our boys nowadays. And many are perplexed and and worried about it. More and more people are writing about it. From my own study, I discovered that it was about in the mid to late 90s that this phenomenon first began to be identified as a thing. Now, there are doubters, there are scoffers. Since those initial studies came out, some have challenged the notion that young boys are struggling in any unusual way or any unprecedented way. They say, well, there's really nothing to be worried about. Boys have always been this way. But now, with a couple of decades of data to analyze, it's becoming more difficult to deny that something pretty unsettling is indeed occurring. Again, not with every single boy. I want to be clear on that. But with many, there seems to be a trend here that's troubling. 
Now, I know young girls have issues too. (laughs) There's some concerning trends emerging with young women as well, but that's a matter for another day. Plus, I'm not very qualified to speak on that. But I want to say that, that what is happening with our boys affects our girls. And as followers of Jesus and lovers of the church of Jesus, as parents and educators and teachers and ministers and mentors, I think we'd all do well to, to try to understand this new phenomenon, and, and that will be to everybody's benefit. So what exactly is this troubling trend People who've been looking at the data are trying to put their finger on it. One author calls it the male motivation deficit. The growing epidemic of unmotivated boys and underachieving young men. And again, this does not describe every single boy in the country or every single boy in this church. I'm very proud of our young men here. There are many exceptions to this trend. But there does seem to be an increasing number of passive, apathetic disengaged boys who don't have much passion for real-world activities and are more enamored with living in fantasy worlds who don't seem to be maturing and growing up into responsible men who engage with their families and with society like has been the custom for many generations. One observer put it this way, for many boys, not caring about anything has become the mark of true guidum, if that's a word. So is this a real thing? Well, consider some statistics. Let's take just the world of education, for example. Studies are now showing that at every age, in every subject, girls get better grades in school than boys do. And so we say, yay, girls, right? But it's not necessarily that girls are smarter. It's just that they care more and they try harder. Boys now seem satisfied with settling for less than girls because they just don't care as much. We probably all agree that's not good. It's at the university level where the gender gap in motivation is really showing up. Over the past five decades, college campuses have gone through a a huge transition. Guys are now in the vast minority in college. In 1970, the percentage of undergrad students who were male was 58%. Now, it's 43% and trending down. Women are now way more likely to attend college than their brothers, and once enrolled, they're far more likely to earn a degree. And as far as pursuing advanced degrees, gals now outpace guys 59 to 41%. And again, yay for women, right? The problem here, the concern here, is not that women are motivated and successful. We celebrate that. It's that guys, on the whole, are becoming less motivated. I mean, why didn't it kind of level out at 50% and stay there? We could talk about reading. A recent study that caught my attention showed that boys nowadays are far less likely than girls are to just sit down and read a book for fun. In fact, 9 out of 10 boys, this study showed, have stopped reading altogether. I did did a double take. 9 out of 10? What was discovered is that boys are less likely to read. Why? Because they just don't want to read. They've lost interest. There's no desire. That was not always the case. I remember when I was a kid reading all 55 Hardy Boys books three or four times. (laughs) 
Things are changing. What's going on? In education, in reading, there's more. The workplace has changed significantly over the past few decades. We should all celebrate the gains that females have made in the marketplace, right? And continue to strive for equal pay, for equal work. That's a good thing. But this summer I was watching a TED Talk by one particular leader of the feminist movement, a gal, and I nearly fell over when, when she basically said, hey, look, our movement has made great gains and has achieved a lot, but we should stop. She said, we should stop pushing. We are ruining the men in this country, and that's going to harm all of us. And I'm like, whoa, I certainly didn't expect to hear that from a leader of the feminist movement. So what is responsible for this newer trend, this epidemic of passive, unmotivated boys who don't seem to want to grow up? We're all familiar, I think, with that overused caricature right, of the 29-year-old guy who still lives at home in his parents' basement, plays video games all night long while munching on Doritos. Mom still does his clothes and gets him up every morning to go to his next part-time job, which he probably won't last that very long. And for sure, ideas like getting married and raising a family aren't even on his screen. Certainly that's a caricature, but it's also reality for far too many young men. So what's, what's behind this, or what's underneath this? And a variety of theories, as you can imagine, are being put forward. In his landmark book, Boys Adrift, Dr. Leonard Sachs takes a stab at this. And he identifies five, five factors in our culture that he believes are contributing to boys' increasing apathy and disengagement from reality and disdain for school. You can decide if you agree with the doctor or not, but I want to share these with you just for you to chew on, okay? What's behind this? First, he suggests that changes at school are contributing to this. Dr. Sachs is convinced that the way many schools are now doing kindergarten does not work for many boys because of how boys' brains develop, which is markedly different from how girls' brains develop. He contends that the kindergarten curriculum at most North American schools has become very boy-unfriendly with the result that many boys get turned off to school at a very early age and that negative predisposition towards the classroom becomes very difficult for even the best teachers and educators to overcome. And then Dr. Sachs asks, whatever happened to recess and field trips and other tactile learning opportunities that favor how young boys' brains develop and are wired to learn things at that young age of five and six. Add to this the de-emphasizing of competition in academics. Competition, which is a huge motivator for many boys. You add in that factor, Dr. Sachs says it shouldn't be surprising that many young boys feel like school is just not for them. The second factor he points out, I'll bet, is one you might have guessed. The advent of video games. He says, boys who feel ill-equipped in kindergarten to sit still and do phonics drills when their brain is not really quite prepared for that kind of learning find a lot more pleasure and greater reward in engaging with video games, playing the exciting, challenging, 
Visually stimulating video games of our day allows boys to act out their urge to be active and, and to be competitive and to engage in risky behavior without causing huge problems with their parents or with their teachers. Dr. Sachs writes, Boys who spend many hours every week playing violent video games are at an increased risk of disengaging from the real world. One of the most highly regarded researchers in this field, psychology professor Craig Anderson, has pointed out that the strength of the evidence linking video games to antisocial behaviors is every bit as strong as the evidence linking secondhand smoke to lung cancer. He also raises this question, what activities have gone dormant? What formerly enjoyable and beneficial activities got bumped in favor of getting to the next level of Call of Duty? How about sitting down to dinner with the family? Friendships, reading, being with girls. <laughs> I remember reading about one study, one researcher who went to college campuses and interviewed college-age girls. And, you know, he's going down his list of questions, and he finally got to a set of questions about boys and relationships with guys. And the girls were visibly frustrated and upset, and they started complaining Hey, just look around. Where are they? Where are the guys? We're out here wanting to have fun and do things, but the guys are nowhere to be found. The researcher concluded they just weren't looking in the right places. Where were the guys? They were in their dorm rooms playing Madden 17. So you'll have to decide for yourself if you agree with these findings and with these conclusions. I wonder how many nasty emails Dr. Sachs got after publishing his book. There's a third factor that he identified that he believes is sucking the drive and motivation out of, out of boys. If this earlier one wasn't controversial enough, how about this one? Medications for ADHD. Dr. Sass contends that when little boys were fidgeting and acting up in kindergarten because they weren't physiologically ready to learn in a certain way, the conventional wisdom at the time was to bypass that problem with medications. Uh-oh, more controversy. Medications which are proven to be able to settle them down and help them focus, but also have been shown to have some negative side effects, including, he says, arresting the development and function of the nucleus accumbens region of the brain, which translates motivation into action. So he traces some of the motivation deficit in boys back to this practice that seems to have grown in popularity the last few decades. I'm sure he got some emails about that. The fourth contributing factor is one I was pretty ignorant of, and I imagine some of you have researched this, endocrine disruptors. This has to do with chemicals used in the production of all of those clear plastic bottles that most of us use, which under certain conditions, he says, leach out of the bottle and into the beverage, and he contends that ingesting these contaminants appears to damage certain areas of the brain, you guessed it, the parts that affect motivation and action. Plus, he says, when combined with other compounds, they can also have the effect of emulating female hormones in a boy's body, reducing the boy's tendencies towards being aggressive and, and that drive. And I'm not an expert on this at all, so you'll have to research it for yourself, but this doctor believes that this too is contributing to fostering increasing apathy and lack of motivation in boys. 
So there's all that. But here is Dr. Sachs's fifth and final factor, and this is the one I'm most concerned about as a pastor and a dad and a lover of the family and a mentor, and it's the loss of positive male role models. As far as the cultural image of dads goes, some of you are old enough to have watched the the full sweep of the downward slide in our culture through the years. From Jimmy Stewart to Ward Cleaver and Andy Griffith and Fred McMurray, remember him, my three sons, to Cliff Huxtable and Stephen Keaton to Homer Simpson. The prevailing cultural image of what it means to be a dad has certainly morphed a bit down through the decades, wouldn't you agree? Dr. Sachs writes this, the long-term success of the Simpsons, I think, isn't it the longest-running show in the history of television or something like that, is one illustration of how the image of the American dad in the American mind today is quite different from where it was two generations ago. The popular image of the American father has been transformed from wise patriarch to bumbling buffoon. Fifty years ago, if a boy were told to grow up, he knew what that meant. Now, not so much, end quote. And so maybe now more than ever, young men are confused as to what it means to be a man, confused as to what true masculinity really is. That question lingers just beneath the surface of every young boy. What is a real man? What does it take to be a real man? And do I have what it takes to become one? It's generally accepted that a boy needs some sort of role model to follow in this journey that we call life, but who will they choose as their role model? Dr. Sachs says in the old days it was almost always dad. Dad was the role model of choice for young boys, or if not dad, then grandpa or an uncle. But with the breakdown of many families, that has changed for a lot of people. So who? Who? Who to look to now? Their favorite hip-hop artist? or star athlete, or some superhero, or Colin Kaepernick, or Donald Trump, or Homer Simpson? Who? Where are the solid role models for young boys and teenage guys to look to and to look up to, and to know they're being well-led into true masculinity? Well, these five factors identified by Dr. Sachs may be on target, Again, you'll have to decide for yourself. Perhaps some are more valid than others. Maybe there's more than what he's pointed out. He goes on in his book to offer some solutions for reversing each of those five factors, and you can probably guess what some of his recommendations would be. But as a follower of Jesus and a pastor of a Christian church and as a fan of the family, and as a dad to three young men and as a mentor to some younger guys, I'm interested in all of those factors, but mostly in that last one, role models. I believe that young boys being exposed to strong male role models is critical if important value systems and character traits and perspectives and ways of looking at the world and ways of treating women are going to get passed on from generation to generation to generation. I don't know if Dr. Sachs was a follower of Jesus or not, but I, I think he was spot on when he wrote this. What do enduring cultures have in common? Strong bonds across generations. They teach customs and traditions to their children, 
and the rules for what is expected for men and for women, and they pass this information from one generation to the next in gender-separate communities. Women teach girls what it means to be a woman in their community, and men teach boys what it means to be a man. There is no enduring culture where boys have been taught what it means to be a man primarily by women. And there is no enduring culture in which teenage boys guide one another into manhood. That's what men are for. Manhood doesn't just happen naturally. Boys must be led into manhood by other men. End quote. Now his contention is that men leading boys into masculinity is what happens in cultures that end up lasting for more than a few hundred years. It's the glue that holds them together across centuries. My concern, though, is more for the passing on of the Christian faith and the passing on of of a concept, a strong concept of biblical Christian manhood. But I do believe the principle is the same. Authentic biblical Christian manhood is learned from authentic biblical Christian men. That's why the great Apostle Paul not only wrote, act like men, but he added, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Boys learn how to become men by mimicking, by imitating what they see in the men they choose as role models. He went on to write again, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, as I said, men must mentor men into the life of faith. Some of you have heard of a a writer named John Eldridge, and he wrote a great book called Fathered by God, and I recommend it to you. And he wrote this, listen, masculinity is bestowed by men and only by men. A boy becomes a man only by the active intervention of his father and the company of other men. What we have in this world now is a bunch of partial men, boys in men's bodies, unfinished men, unfathered, orphaned men, because the core questions of their souls have gone unanswered. We men all need to be initiated into manhood by other men. So let's ask, is there a biblical profile? Is there a biblical picture of of Christian manhood, of authentic Christian manhood? You see, as a Christian, I'm not that concerned about how my culture defines masculinity, but I'm very concerned with how God defines it. What does God-designed, God-ordained, biblical Christian manhood look like? And you probably know, many helpful books and blogs and articles have been written on this topic. One of the books that, that kind of simplified it for me was a book written by a pastor named Robert Lewis in a book called Raising a Modern Day Knight. Maybe you've heard of that title. In this book, he takes the position that if if you really want to discover what true biblical manhood looks like, you must look to two men in the Bible, two men in the Bible who hold unique positions. One is called the first man, the other is called the son of man. One was named Adam, the other was referred to as the second Adam. Both were in unique roles because both of these men served as representatives of the entire human race before God. 
Pastor Lewis makes the case that if anyone modeled true biblical manhood, it was Adam before he sinned, and it was Jesus, the Son of Man. So initially, just choosing the right role models is critical to ending up in the right place, right? Lewis looks at the lives of these two men, Adam and Jesus, and he finds the common ground and simplifies it and condenses it down really to four characteristics of authentic biblical manhood. Here they are. I think I've put them on your outline. If not, you can write them in. A real man, a real man, obeys God's word, loves God's woman that God has brought to him, excels in God's work, and betters God's world. Now you notice that none of these are passive activities, right? The Bible calls Christian men to reject being passive. These are all active things that a man can set his heart on and aim his life at. These are things that a man does. Obeys God's word, loves God's woman, excels in God's work, betters God's world. Do you see Adam in there? Sure you do. Book of Genesis, right? Do you see Jesus in there? Maybe you go, loves God's woman? I thought Jesus was single. Think about it. Yeah, thank you. Jesus has a bride. Her name is the church. Jesus loves the church. He laid down his life to make the church pure and holy. Yes, Jesus loves the woman that God is preparing for him. Did Jesus better God's world? Sure. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead to reverse the curse of Adam's sin, right? To create a community of believers who love their neighbors and who bring flourishing into this world and ultimately pledging to renovate and remake the entire world. A new heavens and a new earth. To make all things new. Some guys need, need things to be simple. And so I thought this profile of Biblical manhood accomplishes that. It's simple, it's memorable. I memorized it in about 15 seconds. It's transferable, and it speaks to the, the allegiances and loyalties and relationships of men and also to our work in this world. To me, it's not a stretch to think that when Paul wrote, act like men, be strong, that he had these things in mind. Act like this. This is what a man looks like. Be strong in these things, in obeying God's word, loving the woman that God has brought to you, excelling in your work, and serving other people to make God's world a better place to live. Look to Adam, I think he would say, and especially look to Jesus as your primary role model. And if you need a present-day flesh-and-blood mentor to show you the way, look for a man who is strong in these areas as they were. But think about this now. How does a young boy get there? Is there a journey? One author contends, and I agree, that a young boy needs not only a guide for this journey, a role model, but also a map. He does indeed need a flesh and blood role model, a man in his life who cares for him and believes in him and who strives to live these things out and who is humble enough to repent when he fails and falls short. He needs that but he also needs a pathway to walk. 
needs to go through a kind of initiation process that will take him through several stages. And I remind you that God is a God of process. When God wants to create an oak tree, what does he start with? A little acorn that goes through a process. And God uses a process in turning a boy into a man. This author believes there is a masculine journey, there is an ancient road, there is a marked trail that has been traversed for men or by men for centuries on this path to manhood. It derives primarily from the life of David in the Bible, but also from the lives of Adam and Moses and Joseph and Jesus. I think he's on to something, and I'd like to lay it out for you in shorthand. You'll need to study it more on your own. Is there a biblically-based journey to being a man? And so this author suggests this, and I, I laid it out for you there. Boy, ranger, warrior, lover, king, sage. If this author is correct, these stages overlap, but each of them has a season in a young man's life. Each has a unique challenge that's associated with it. And there's a particular role for the dad or the mentor who is serving as the primary guide to the young man. And many guys can testify that, that wounds are left in a boy's heart when that primary need is not met or the dad fails him or the guide or mentor fails him in some way. Entire seminars are taught on this, like day-long seminars, but I'm going to give you a flying overview of these stages, kind of the six-minute version, okay? And of course, it begins with boyhood. And this is the stage of wonder and exploration, of being a kid and running and playing and going out into the woods and exploring or going to the park and discovering things, all within safe boundaries, just like those early days in the Garden of Eden. Dads have a super important role in this stage that complement the mother's nurturing role. Dads need to be present, right? Engaged, involved in the game, arranging new experiences for his son, establishing boundaries for safe exploration and fun exploration, and especially give lots of affirmation and validation to his son. The boy needs to feel like a beloved son, to feel prized by his father like Jesus did, when he came up out of the waters of baptism and he heard that booming voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. And I'm very pleased with him. And he hadn't performed a single miracle yet. He prized him just for being his son. That's a pattern. If that need for validation at an early age is not met, Odds are that the boy will grow up seeking and trying to earn that validation for the rest of his days. You talk to some men even in their 50s or 60s or 70s still seeking the validation of their father who's long gone. If this stage is cut short or stolen away, if the boy is forced to grow up too soon or not given a safe world to grow up in, if he's not assured in his heart that he is a beloved son or if he gets abandoned by his father his heart is wounded and that has I tell you long-term ramifications so this is a critical stage boyhood and then there's the next stage which could be called the ranger stage or the cowboy stage maybe the biblical term would be shepherd but in our culture shepherds are viewed as cute rather than rugged 
which is what they actually were. So maybe ranger or cowboy is better, beginning around the ages of 12, 13 years old, and on into the 20s. And this is the stage of adventure and testing. The young man now yearns for adventure, and he, he craves being tested. He longs to prove himself as a man. This is David telling, telling Saul, give me a shot at that giant. I mean, I ripped, I ripped a lion apart. <laughs> I killed a bear with my own hands. Let me at him. Give me a shot. Being held back or always being kept safe stunts the development of a boy in this stage. It's often resisted by him. Maybe in his late teens, the young man pushes to leave home. I'm out of here. I'm going away to college or to find a job or to go on a road trip with his buddies. I remember when I was 18, I, I went on a hitchhiking trip, 1,400 miles. You think I called and asked my mom first if she thought that was a good idea? No. I just went and then called her and informed her after I got to my destination. And I'll tell you what, that trip changed my life. It was a defining moment in my life. I learned more about myself and my God on that trip than probably ever up to that point. Often this rite of initiation at this stage includes a road trip of some sort. And moms cringe, but more dads should say, Go for it, son. Call me if you need me. Parenting needs to shift a bit in this stage to allow for more independence, more decision-making by their sons, and with it, more responsibility. The ranger needs to learn the value of hard work and the value of the dollars that he earns with his hard work. It's a time for learning that life can be hard, but also that perseverance pays off. In this stage, the young man's heart can get wounded if he is continually sheltered and forbidden from ever having any adventure, or if there's no one to take him there, or if he repeatedly fails with no one to help him interpret those failures. I mean, every cowboy gets thrown off his horse, right? But is there someone there to help interpret that experience for him, help him understand failure is not final unless you quit? Get up, get back on the horse. The message from dad in this stage needs to be this. Son, you have a strength and it's needed in this world. God often calls in this stage a young man, calls them out or calls them up. You know, God is the ultimate father, right? He's the one fathering all of us. In this stage, he often calls up a young man to be something that they want to be, but they're not sure that they are. That's what he did with Abram. Leave your home, leave all that's familiar to you, go to a land that I will show you. It's what he did with Moses out in the desert, right? But, 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 but I'm not ready, I'm not ready. I'll be with you. Let's go. Like Jesus did with Peter. Step out of the boat, out of that familiar safe zone. Step out, take my hand, let's do this. Trust me with your life. This is the ranger stage, and it too is crucial to a boy's development and maturity. And then there's the warrior stage. And this is where the young man is coming into his own, and he, he embraces a cause, and, and he engages in a battle. This is where the first man failed, right? Adam. Adam was passive when he should have been actively engaged in protecting his woman, his wife. 
and us. But this is also where the second Adam succeeded, right? Courageously battling his enemy to the death. Was Jesus passive when it came to his battle? Or did he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem in order to accomplish our eternal salvation and win a victory not just for him but for us? In this phase of his maturation process, the young warrior learns that certain things are worth fighting for and he begins to choose what he believes those things to be. His challenge is to reject passive masculinity that's often promoted in our culture. His challenge is to avoid the path of least resistance, to learn discipline, to learn self-control, to aim his life at making a difference and learn through enduring hardship that obeying God's word, loving God's woman, excelling in God's work, and bettering God's world are battles worth fighting for and winning. It's time in the young man's life to cultivate the heart of a warrior not unlike God's own warrior heart. The Lord is a warrior. That is his name, the Bible says. But in this stage, when all the young man's attempts to rise up are mocked, or he's shamed for them, or he's belittled, or they're crushed, when there's no one to train him, or when there's no king to give his allegiance to, or no cause to fight for, or if he, if he never wins at anything, or when he's always told that being aggressive and being competitive is wrong and he should just strive to be a nice person, then his warrior heart is squelched and wounded because men were meant for the battle. Anybody feeling any of this? I'm almost out of time, so let me just briefly mention the next three stages. The lover stage. This is the stage where the young man is awakened to beauty. And he becomes ready to offer his strength to a beautiful woman who has captured his heart and to whom he has committed every epic love story you've ever seen on the movie screen or ever read about in a novel pictures some aspect of this phase of a man's life. Now, there doesn't always have to be a woman. There is other beauty to appreciate. But in God's design, there often is a woman. And in this stage, it's the man's challenge to fight for her heart and to seek to lead her as Christ leads and loves his bride, the church. And certainly we all know that some wounding can occur in this stage, right? Some bear the marks of it, the lover stage. And then there's the stage of the king. And this is the phase of life now, a man maybe in his 40s or 50s, establishes his domain and wields his influence, hopefully for the good of other people. Like Moses, like Joseph, like David, like Jesus. In this stage, the man must learn to cultivate a heart, though, that is yielded to the king of kings, lest he become passive like Adam or a tyrant like Pharaoh. In this phase, wounds arise from people being disloyal or betraying him or or being undermined, or him being forced out, or passed over in favor of a younger man. All of that happened a lot in the Bible and in our day as well. And then finally, a few men, a few, arrive at a very significant and wonderful place, and that is the stage of being a sage. A sage. And this is the stage of 
compassionate wisdom and humility. Gained from decades of experience and faithfulness over time and reflection on life, think Gandalf, think Yoda. This is the guy that you just want to sit at his feet and listen and ask him questions and listen and lean in because of the weight of who he is, the gravitas of who he is and having lived decades and learned from so many experiences, including the weight, as one author put it, the weight of many winters. He's been through a lot and learned from it. By the way, a king needs a sage in order to rule his domain well. The sage is not resting on his laurels. He's still hungry to learn. He's still humbled by all that he doesn't yet know. In fact, most sages don't, most sages don't think of themselves as sages. They're not wearing a lanyard that says, Sage, ask me anything you want. They simply want to make their best contribution during the fourth quarter of their lives. They want the fourth quarter to be their best, most productive quarter. Their landing gear might be down because of the diminishing capacities of their advanced age, but they still want to come in hot and finish well. And by the way, could I just, as an aside here, could I just urge you, if you have a sage in your family, male or female, to consider the merits of blessing him or her with a special kind of honoring ceremony while they're still alive. So often this happens, right? At their funeral, when they can't be blessed by it. Why not plan something for that grandfather or grandmother in your life who's had such an impact on the whole family, that patriarch or matriarch? Why not plan something? Get the siblings and cousins together and plan something that blesses and honors them while they still have their faculties. I did this for my dad when he was 70 years old. Got all his friends and family together in a fancy restaurant and got to stand up and bless him while he was sitting there. I think that's an idea worth considering, don't you? While they're still living. Unfortunately, even in this stage, a person can experience wounding if they're forgotten or written off or dismissed as an old has-been who doesn't have it anymore, written off by cocky young warriors or insecure kings, or written off as irrelevant in this Postmodern era, you know, grandpa doesn't understand computers. Listen, we need sages in our lives, in our country, in our churches, in our families, probably now more than ever, and there are so few, and we should honor them. I meet more and more people now who say, you know what, before my grandmother passed away, I sat down on the porch, porch swing with her and a recorder. I said, Grandma, tell me about your life in the Depression era. So good to have that. That's treasure, isn't it? To have that. Well, if this interests you, and there's a lot more, obviously, I urge you to get that book I mentioned, Fathered by God. I think it'll speak to you. I view it as pretty sound theologically and biblically, and I would encourage you to check it out. But all of this really begs the question, what can we do 
in light of what's going on with boys in our culture? What can we do? And, and I would say this, just to simplify it, get more intentional. You and I, getting more intentional, you say, well, in what ways? Well, get more intentional about guiding our own sons and daughters into the life of faith in Jesus. And I thought Alan did an awesome job last weekend of helping us understand what that means to get intentional. Pastor Brett has done a couple of sermons on that as well. Get more intentional about raising our own children into the life of faith instead of being haphazard about it or hoping that she'll take care of it. And then get more intentional about forming healthy relationships with people from other generations. And I know all of us are kind of wired to gravitate towards people who are in our own life stage, right? We, we naturally do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But how about getting intentional about forming relationships with somebody in a younger generation? Or someone in an older generation who's got way more experience than you? And I... I love when I see this happening in our church and I see more and more small groups, for example, getting intentional about trying to become more intergenerational instead of everybody in the exact same life stage. I think there's value in that. I know there's value in that. And then third, get more intentional about finding ways for those, those boys whose dad isn't around to be mentored by a godly man in the church. A few months ago, I, I got a call from a guy, and, and he said, Hey, Steve, do you remember me? I was in your dorm in 1982. I'm like, I have a hard time remembering what I did last week. Oh, yeah, yeah, Ryland, yeah, I remember you. He said, Well, I actually live in the Columbus area now. Wow, awesome. So I'd like to come and talk to you about something. Okay, so he set up an appointment, came and saw me, and he said, I'm, I'm an area representative for a ministry that helps equip men in the church to be a mentor to young boys who don't have an active father in their life. And he, he laid this out for me, and, and, you know, we got a lot going on here in my default mode, usually with new things, to say, well, you know, we're busy, we got a lot going on, but I, I listened to this, and I thought, wow, this is good. <laughs> it's structured, there's a plan and purpose to it, it's gospel-centered, and I just put it out before the Lord and said, you know what, on this weekend, I'm just going to lay it out for our people, and if there's an interest, we'll put together a little orientation gathering and see if we've got some men who would like to serve in that kind of a role for a young boy and see if we have maybe some single moms who would like their sons to be engaged with something like that. So I, I would ask you, if that appeals to you at all, if you feel a little tug at all from God, then, then write me a little note on your card that says something like mentoring boys or something like that, whether you're a guy or, or a mom who has a son or two. And uh, if there's enough interest, we'll pull this together and see what God does with it, okay? Well, do this. I know I gave you a lot th this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? And I just, I just wanted to ask if there was something in there today that, that you needed to hear. Is there anything like that for you? Would you raise your hand? I'm just... I just need to know. Thank you, many, many of you. And Lord, again, I pray that every purpose you ever had for putting this on my heart five or six months ago that you would accomplish. Lord, I'd love to see in the days ahead and hear about things that you're doing. Lord, in terms of 
men coming into the lives of men and women, women coming into the lives of women, passing on valuable things that need to be passed on if we're going to live the lives you've called us to and if we're going to make the impact in this world that you've called us to. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord. Receive our worship now. And mostly I want to thank you for being a great father to us, for not abandoning us, for never forsaking us, for never leaving us alone. And where our, our parents maybe failed us, Lord, you have stepped in and filled the gaps. You are a good father, and I praise you for that, Lord. And we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.